It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Weiss of The Athletic, and I really wanted to have Jared on because of his perspective on the possibility, not yet complete as I release this podcast, that Ime Udoka could be the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets and that overall situation, how it affects the Celtics and everything else. So that's where we start. And we go in a lot of other directions, including, of course, how the Celtics have done on the floor this year, Jason Tatum's strong start, how things are looking in terms of the starting and closing fives and a whole bunch of other great stuff. This episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use the CLNS50 promo code to receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Episode runs a little bit short of an hour and a lot of great stuff in here. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Just a normal time in the NBA. Absolutely. And less than six weeks ago, I actually went back in my calendar and checked it. You and I had a conversation on Real GM Radio about the suspension of Ime Udoka. And at that point, there was a lot that was unknown. I would say to an extent, there's still a lot that's unknown. And I don't think any of us could have predicted that it's not 100% signed, sealed, delivered yet, though it seems like there are reasons for that delay, that Ime Udoka is now not only a part of a different, potentially part of a different organization, but back on the sidelines very soon. Well, one interesting thing here to note is uh, he isn't yet. Sure. Like, he he straight up is dangling right now because the whole Kyrie situation making things so crazy there. I don't know when the optics will be ideal for them to hire him, but, I mean, I, I guess they won't ever be, but they'll be better than they are now. But this... We haven't really heard any movement on the Udoka front in the last 24 hours or so, and we thought it was going to be wrapped up by, what, yesterday, probably? So I I can't imagine that that's not going to happen, but it does make you wonder how long it's going to take to happen. That's a fair point. And there, nothing is nothing is certain until it is certain. And we are, as we record this, as we record this at two fifteen Eastern, things could always change and could always be different. And I, I think there's there are a lot of different elements of this, and obviously the full truth is not public, and I'm not even sure how many people even know it privately, and I, I certainly am not one of them. And that creates challenges, but I think part of, and I'm not remotely justifying this, instead it's trying to f- figure out behavior rather than justify behavior, is there's this concept of due diligence, and what do you know, and there's been some some reporting about there that teams would have, from what they know, would have, would have stayed away from Udoka either now or permanently based on what based on their understanding of the situation. And that is completely justified. 
potentially. I mean, we don't know all the full information. And the Nets distinctly decided differently there. And the risk calculus, I guess you could say, but also like the moral calculus of that is very complicated. I mean, this what makes the Udoka situation so hard is that there's pretty much nothing out there publicly, just the very basics of what might have happened or probably happened has been reported. The team hasn't said anything official. He hasn't said anything official. And then the Nets who hired him at, you know, immediately after getting rid of Steve Nash, and like, obviously they were looking before they got rid of Steve Nash. But like they they can't they can either say that they were getting ready to hire Ime this entire time or that they weren't and that and that they don't undercut the legitimacy of their coaches by trying to find other coaches while they're still coaching. Um, and then they, they either way, it's hard for them to be convincing that they have thoroughly investigated the situation, especially because the the investigation that the Celtics did is has been so under seal that the team isn't even telling their own players anything. So, you know, the players obviously are using their sources to get really good intel and under, get a, a an estimation of what's going on. And Brooklyn is trying to do the same, but can they get the kind of intel that even the guys within the organization are getting? And they have been expressing a lot of public frustration of their uncertainty. It, it seems hard to imagine that the Nets could have gotten everything in their store in the story completely straight. And then, of course... They're not going to be able to share anything beyond what he decides to share. They can't be like, here's what we figured out and, and be able to demonstrate that what he did wasn't bad enough, that, it's, that it like, makes hiring him uh, a complete you know, uh, disregard for, you know, for like women in the workplace and everything that goes along with the situation. I don't know how they're, that they're able to justify it. They basically are going to have to be like, I, I don't know how they're able, I don't know how they're able to justify it essentially, except for just basically saying like, we were willing to accept the, the risk here. Right. And I think at, at in the moment, and I understand why this happened, people were focused on the kind of the, oh, due diligence part of it regarding Nash, because the reporting from Woj and Shams about Ime Udoka being the front runner and then basically it being close to done after Steve Nash was fired was almost immediate. So there are people like, oh, well, how do they have enough time to do the due diligence? And the answer there is they've probably been working on it for a while. This is, I mean, Ime Udoka is somebody who had clearly been on their radar because he had been within the organization recently. However, I think the second phase of this is actually more salient, which is even if they had been working on it for a while, what could they have actually generated? What what sort of diligence could they have actually gotten? And my preliminary answer is not a whole heck of a lot, considering what the Celtics did is under seal. And the resources that Brooklyn has to investigate it, since it was in another house, are extremely limited. And so they're, my instinct would be they're probably relying on sources that are Let's just call it favorable to Ime Udoka because that's who would be wanting to talk to the Nets. Sure. And, I mean, the thing is, they can't – I assume that they can't talk to Celtic staffers that were probably interviewed for that investigation that was done internally. Um Maybe the Celtics shared some of the information or at least some of their assessment of the findings, and that's part of it. I, I don't know – I don't know if that's reasonable considering the Celtics wouldn't share that with the public, but then they would share it with the future employer. I, I'm not really sure where that falls under one employment law and just like the ethics of the whole situation. Either way, I think we can probably all reasonably agree that the Nets are not able to do sufficient due diligence to truly know exactly how much Ime Odoka deserves another chance. 
if it's really as it's been reported, it seems like he hasn't done enough that he doesn't deserve to not work ever again. But I think it's similar to this Kyrie situation where if you bring him on, if you can't explain if you can't uh, you know be transparent about what happens and what you do not condone within what happened, then it does look like you're condoning the behavior to a degree. And that that reflects very poorly on the organization. It does. And there not only is it the public perception, but it's the internal elements, as you brought up, the, the women within the organization, whether we're talking about the ones who will work closely with Ime Udoka should he end up with a job, or the ones who work more broadly within it. Of this, is this an organization that supports and protects people of and, and I mean and it's not just I mean, I think I have a real frustration that there are often people and it's interesting, my perspective on the Kyrie situation as somebody who is not Jewish, is like there are these people who are like, Oh well it's also bad. It's also bad for men who support women having a safe work environment. Like this isn't yeah. just a female issue. This is an everyone issue that affects females more. And I think that it that is part of what, what creates these real pervasive issues that Brooklyn can't really solve right now. And it's, you know, what information did you consider? How were you okay with it was so so quickly? And I mean, and that, the whole sequencing of this, you know, it, it helped, and, and the, it, the inconsistency of, of information, both publicly and privately, leads to these things like the, you know, the, 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 the stuff from The Athletic about Marcus Smart. It's like, yeah, this seems weird that he would be both sufficient, like, at the same time, suspended for a year, and also, like, another team makes a completely dis- different decision, but so, like, that, that, and especially if you think you made Oak as a coach, you just have this deep connection with him, like Marcus Smart, he was just your coach for a year, but it also can be that either they're looking through different inputs, or they're looking at the same inputs and making different decisions. Yeah, and I, I think an important distinction is that you know, the Celtics had to punish or dis- decided that they had to punish the situation because they had to they had to you know they had to install a consequence for violating the workplace, r- addressing something that had already been done. They had to punish something that was done that was inappropriate and c- crossed a very clear line for them. At this point. You know, I mean, it's like there's a question of is Brooklyn responsible for upholding the punishment that the Celtics gave to him? I, I probably not, right? And I guess it's the NBA's decision to whether or not they have to make this enforceable across the board. But at this point, it's like you know, the Celtics are responsible for taking care of their own house. Brooklyn can look at this as that Ime has had to pay a price and a humiliation and learn from this mistake, and we expect that he won't make this mistake again. That's, uh, you know, convincing the public that they should believe that as well. That's going to be very difficult for them to do. And Ime is obviously going to have to do some significant repenting. And then, of course, there's a whole thing of we don't know who was damaged by the situation, who was harmed by the situation, who was unfairly treated by the situation. I mean, we know that there were multiple families that had to bear the fallout and humiliation of this whole process. And at the very least, you know, it's a lot more than just two people that were involved by the situation. Exactly. And it will be and also like you could think about the risk and this isn't the most important part of this, but the risk that Brooklyn is taking, because at any point, if something happens, then you're not only right back where you started, you're significantly worse because it's like you trusted this and and look at what happened. And the NBA, 
I don't want to dwell too much on these other circumstances, is actually in a very complicated frontier right now with some of this behavior where the league has generally not acted yet. And there, there's an exception with the Miles Bridges situation because that now that there is now that he's pleaded no contest, like the league has steps they could take. But in a number of these situations, including Josh Primo, the entity and in some of the cases it was specific behavior with this team the entity that they employed that individual at that time may have enacted punishment may have not is now not in power with that individual and so like for josh primo we don't know where things are going both in terms of the the criminal charges and everything else and and i mean nobody claimed him off waivers but so far, the league has not infor- in, in, has not done any discipline on him. I'm guessing that they're kind of like hoping they can get a lot more time to fact find here before having to do something. And then with Bridges, he is technically a restricted free agent, and the Hornets hold his rights. However, he is not on their like you know he's not really on the roster. And then with Imeodoka, he was suspended by the Celtics, not by the NBA, and now he could potentially be coaching the team. So this is. It's a complicated series of, of things where the league has not stepped in, and now in some cases they must, and in other cases they probably should. Yeah, and actually literally as we were talking, uh, Mike Vorkanov and Sham Sharani at The Athletic just reported that the uh, sheriff's uh, office where, I guess, in San Antonio is conducting a criminal investigation into Josh Primo now. So. Right. There's there's your bright line of how you know of how I guess what involvement the league has to have is like when does it become a, a legal and then when it, when does it become a criminal issue? Right. That's and and that's a really important important point to consider in in all of this. Um, is there anything else on this? I mean, we're we're kind of in this weird nebulous state where it seems like Imadoka is getting the job and and not going to. Well, I guess we'll end with this. You you just spent a year covering an Imadoka team. What do you think changes, and what do you think stays the same, assuming he gets the head job in Brooklyn? Changes in Brooklyn? Yes. Okay, because obviously the, there's a Boston side to this. There is. Uh well. I mean, his his from everything we've seen with the way Steve Nash conducts himself, I think there's going to be a pretty different type of communication environment and accountability system. A huge part of this is whether Kyrie Irving ever plays for the Nets again. And, you know, his apology is a first step, but I certainly hope that there's a lot more steps in the process than just that simple apology before the Nets decide to let Kyrie play again. So it will see if he actually meets with Adam Silver and what comes of that meeting. So, you know, Kyrie can still really screw the situation up. But uh, Ime's job is a lot different between whether or not Kyrie is there because Kyrie is obviously this massive, uh, you know, he's this massive subversive element. And I don't know exactly how, uh, you know, how much he subverts authority on the basketball court. I mean, we saw, was it, I think it was Mark Stein reported that a, he talked to some advanced scouts who said that Kyrie was completely breaking off the play calls that Steve Ash was putting out there. And I remember hearing rumors about that when Brad Stevens was coaching him. So it's like, you know, if I, I'd be really curious to see how Ime Adoka handles somebody running a play that he didn't call. I didn't hear anything about it last year. I also think that he developed a relationship last year with his players where if they decided we actually want to run this and overrule them, I think there would be some leeway where he would accept that. But obviously, in, you know, you, have to, you can only get away with that a couple times before it becomes complete 
subverting of the coach. And at that point, you guys need to have a conversation to figure out how much authority are you going to see to your point guard to decide what the offense is going to be. So, you know, if Kyrie isn't there, I think it's a lot easier for Ime to run things. If Kyrie is there, I mean, I, I just I don't think anybody at this point knows what Kyrie responds to because he had one of the greatest point guards of all time as his coach, and that did, that didn't seem to work. Um, so it's not like qualifications necessarily is the key. Under Brad Stevens, you know, Brad Stevens was like he wasn't nearly as authoritative as Ime was. It was a lot more of like a kind of reasoning style leader, and that had his ups and downs with with Kyrie, but I think had a pretty similar result to Nash. So maybe Udoka is the type of coach who you know doesn't take shit and is really willing to trash talk people especially publicly maybe he is the kind of coach that could work with Kyrie but it's hard to imagine anybody works with Kyrie at this point especially with the way things are just going with everything right now but at least I do think that Kyrie and Durant will be a good parent I'm sorry that Ime and Durant would be a good pairing and maybe that allows them to create a more like just like I mean, what, what Ime Odoka did so well in Boston was he just he revved everybody up. He got everybody playing hard. He got everybody holding each other accountable, communicating well, learning how to be direct and aggressive without taking things too personally. And that that really worked. And you could just see it in their intensity level on the defensive end. And we're seeing with Brooklyn, like Brooklyn's defensive intensity has been absolute garbage. It's never really been good, but lately it's just been garbage. And the best thing that Ime Odoka can do for that team is to get all of their kind of weaker defenders to play with a level of intensity that makes up for their defensive shortcomings. If that can happen, and obviously like Ben Simmons needs to get healthy and play harder and find his game again. Like if all those things come together, this is a team that has you know, good playoff potential for sure. But I mean, Udoka, there's just, there's so many moving parts with just the players itself that, you know, Udoka's situation already is so difficult. It's just hard to imagine everything breaking in that direction enough that they can actually turn this thing around. I like to think about coaching defensively as how, whether you can elevate your talent relative to their theoretical talent level on that end. And so for Brooklyn, they have these twin challenges. They're currently per cleaning the glass 29th in defense. And I think that's a well-earned 29th overall, though they have had worse than them. Wow. uh, Detroit. (laughs) And the, and so, yeah, there's some, some opponent shooting luck in there, but not an absolute ton. And so you have two parts to this. So one is, I think this, the Nets' defensive talent overall is pretty weak. I, I, Claxton's had a, had a better year than I expected, but generally speaking, they they don't have a ton of defensive talent on this team. And they, you know, but I think they've underperformed that. So I think Yumeiroka can do a good job there. And getting the Nets to, to perform to or over their defensive talent level isn't the same as the Celtics doing that because the Celtics had way better defensive players. So you're not sure you're not going like, oh, all of a sudden they bring him in and they're the best defense or top five defense in the league. No, far from it. But they can be a lot better. And then there are the feedback loops where that makes them better on the other end. You get more stops and, and vice versa. You get all those things. And you brought up, like, the Kyrie stuff is, is is good. And, I mean, you can also throw in the coaches that he dealt with in Cleveland, including Ty Lue and David Blatt, as different kind of parts of this. And nobody's really gotten all the way to him. But Udoka is a different thing. And it's just like, it's another try. And it's, honestly, you brought up the, like, we don't know what motivates him with Kyrie. I think it's the same story with Ben Simmons, where Simmons has had different coaches during his Philadelphia tenure. And, like, we there have been a lot of complaints justifiably so about like what he hasn't done in the offseason maybe Imeodoka is the coach that can get there and that can get can give him something different and for Simmons 
a lot of it, as much as like I've been frustrated with his defense, is actually just getting his offensive mentality right and just be like, okay, when you have an advantage, you need to push it. Like that's the only thing you can do. And because Ben Simmons plays the way he's played most of this year, he is a huge problem for the Nets because he's not shooting, he's not being aggressive. Nick Claxton has been better than he is, so like where does he fit into their 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 key lineups? And so hopefully, you know throwing throwing everything in the box shuffling it up and putting it out again like that leads to some more positive results than it has before and if it doesn't then you're in a largely situa- similar situation to where you were before which is frustrating but not the worst thing in the world when you consider where they were briefly like what do you think this does with boston with boston yeah um i mean they they like al horford was asked about it on friday and he said like they'll be happy for emay if he gets the job but they've already been moving forward and you know that's a little different than what marcus smart was saying when he talked to the athletic and the globe uh, at shoot around the other day smart i mean the thing is like smart was saying things that i think were wishful but i don't think anybody actually was operating under uh, like like he was talking about being under the impression that emay would be back next year Everybody in the world has been saying that's not happening. So he clearly didn't think that was happening. And he's not he's not no, he's not delusional. He knew that wasn't happening. So I, I think that this is basically with Boston, they've the players have been frustrated since the beginning of the situation. And they there's no closure yet right now. Like they they think it looks like Emay's leaving and maybe they will get some answers now that Emay's gonna have to start speaking publicly again. He's gonna he, he can't just completely ignore it. Like it's gonna follow him all year. He's gonna have to have some sort of strategy for how to talk about it in his introductory press conference so maybe they'll get some answers then but like he's there's no closure for them right now and so as much as they can try to move forward with missoula and you know so far it's going pretty well i think they're having a really good season so far even though the record's not great it's only been seven games and two of those were nail biter losses to cleveland like they've been playing really well this year but like there's just like this huge lingering thing that it doesn't make any sense and it's going to take a while for this for the for them to get not not so some sort of closure but just like some sort of lack of uncertainty and i think that's always going to fester a little bit and i guess basketball can help them forget about it but when push comes to shove and things get tricky this year and there's moments where joe Missoula has to really flex his authority those are the moments where you wonder if the Emay situation is going to linger, where guys are going to be like, you know, if Emay was here, I don't know why Emay isn't here, but if he was here, this would go differently. You know, those are the moments where you do wonder if that's where things can, I don't think, go south for Missoula. I don't think that's ever going to happen. He's, he's like, he's, he's a good coach and they all like him, so I don't think it's going to happen, but it's going to be moments that are really going to be trying for him. And then if those things pile up, you may get stuck in a slog for so long that it kind of undoes everything. Just how, like, you know, people when you talk to coaches and they talk about lineups they always mention if you put the, lo- the wrong lineup out there for three minutes in a game you could lose the game right there and if the celtics have things in disarray for a certain period of time that everything could fall apart for them right there they they things are just a little too tenuous right now for them to afford that another complication is if Ime Adoka is in a different organization navigating for Brad Stevens and ownership Joe Mazzulla's status and title within the organization. And so when is he is he the person that you want as your permanent head coach? Is Do you want to make that official? Do you want to? Because like that could be weird, too. And so that, that can create tension in a bunch of different ways, depending on how the season goes. It could be like you commit to him and then things go south. And it's like, is this really the guy? You have to presumably have to renegotiate a contract and everything else like that. 
And remember how close the Ime Odoka suspension happened to the start of the season. Brad Stevens and this ownership group might want to do a more broad search, which leads to an awkward holding pattern. And now if things go well, like there's there's an easy solution if things go really well and you're happy with Missoula, but this could create tension as well. I mean, one thing that helps is they just did a broad search a year ago. It's not like the coaching candidate pool has dramatically evolved. I mean, Joe Mazzula was one of the guys that I think went from a fringe candidate to a legit candidate in that time. Uh, Will Hardy is obviously off the market now. So you know he was one of the prime candidates that could have had a chance there. Guys that are assistants that hadn't gotten promoted yet. Darvin Ham has gotten a job now. I think, you know, Charles Lee is still out there. I'm sure there's a bunch of other examples. But it, it's not like... It's not like they they don't know what the coaching market looks like. Sure. I think they probably have a pretty good grasp. And you know, Joe, Joe was a Joe was a viable coaching candidate before he got this promotion just now. It, it happened rapidly, but he was considered a viable candidate. They already know what they have in him. They know him well enough, I think, at this point that really what they're looking for is just to see how he reacts to being in the head seat because you never know. And they're in a they're in an interesting situation where I think any team would love to be able to do a soft launch of a head coach to figure out if they're worth keeping around. Like it's. It's actually they're very fortunate in that they get to see how Joe handles the job before deciding to keep him long term and then decide, do we actually have to go back to the drawing board? So from that perspective, ideally, you would love to just see how it goes and let him test it out for a little while. But I wrote about this when the email thing was happening on The Athletic, like. What happens right now with Missoula's status, whether they strip the interim tag, whether they give him an actual deal, that says a lot about how they feel about him right now. And if they don't, if they're not convinced already to give him the job when like they gave Ime the job without any head coaching experience, they bet on him being a good head coach. So they could certainly do that with Joe right now and bet on him to be a good head coach. If they don't do that right now, then it at least shows that there's uncertainty. And whether that's uncertainty because they want to take advantage of this opportunity to test out their coach, which never really happens, or because they just straight up aren't sure yet on Joe, I feel like it reflects the same way either way to everybody on the outside, particularly the players who need to respect Joe's authority for it to work. Right. And the uh, yeah, as you mentioned, like they, they have an idea of what the coaching landscape is. I will mention Quinn Snyder is another name that would be potentially interesting. I don't think they would prefer him to what Missoula has done. And as long as nobody agitates too much, I think that your idea on the kind of the structure and timing is, is right. And I wanted to acknowledge the possibility that things go haywire, but I don't expect that they will. And I, th- I think Missoula's done a good job. Plenty more with Jared Weiss, but first a message from betonline.ag. Basketball is back, and BetOnline remains your number one source for all your sports betting needs this season. You'll always find the latest odds, team matchup info, player news, and game trends at BetOnline. And as your continued source for all sports wagering information, BetOnline features live betting, free contests, and live scores, plus giveaways all season long. Always the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports and events, including the NFL, NBA, NHL, MMA, tennis, boxing, and even golf. So use the CLNS50 promo code to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. So again, head to betonline.ag to use the CLNS50 promo code to receive your rewards at BetOnline, where the game starts. 
what we've seen from the Celtics. And there are a couple different ways to evaluate it. One, obviously, Robert Williams has been out. The Celtics are 4-3, and three, but two of their three losses were in overtime to the Cavs, who are looking like a pretty good team. And the third loss was that bizarre one to the Chicago Bulls a couple days before that Cleveland one, where they were ahead and then the Bulls just kind of went out and, and, and won it. As a as an outsider, as somebody who hasn't watched every second of the Celtics, what I've seen from them has been really what I expected without Williams, where they're they're a good team, they're playing well, they're playing well defensively, they're figuring they're figuring things out on both ends of the floor. Is that how it feels to you too? Yeah, I think what we're seeing is that Rob is that guy that takes them from good to great. And I mean, the areas where they're where they're lacking are their drop coverage on pick and rolls hasn't been that good so far. And they're in a deeper drop, which leaves them more vulnerable because they don't have Rob out there. And then their their rim presence hasn't been good. Uh, their defensive rebounding has been a problem. I, I mean, from the from the outset, once we found out that he was hurt and we saw who they were bringing in for their backup centers, we knew rebounding was going to be a real issue. And credit to Grant Williams, he's gotten better. Jason Tatum has, you know, he's been more committed to crashing the glass. He still is, he still is bad when it comes to boxing out, but when it comes to flying in, he's been good with it. So I think guys are trying to shore up the rebounding issues, but when they go up against teams with length or teams with athleticism, they they just they get beat on the just up above the rim for those rebounds so many times. We saw it with Cleveland, we saw it with Orlando, it was an issue. Like it's been an issue, and that's where Rob comes in. Rob is just the guy that he just swoops in and saves the day over and over and over again throughout games. And they're they're not going to be a great team without him, but I think they've been a good enough team without him that you expect that if he can be back out there and actually stay out there they should be a great team again agreed wholeheartedly and i mean so if you look kind of the four factors as a basic concept of it i i've seen what you've seen that the defensive rebounding is actually relative to league ranking is actually very similar to last year but it has been some good games some bad games and it's usually you can tell by the opponent that they're playing and it has been i would say a little bit distressingly bad in the in the struggle games but the offensive rebounding has fallen off, and that's not a huge surprise because they don't really have a Robert Williams facsimile. You see the same thing in their you know effectiveness at the rim. Lo and behold, you lose Robert Williams and the f- role he plays within their offense, and they're not as successful at shots at the rim when they take you take out the Robert Williams dunks and everything else like that. The one that's really interesting to me, and this is one that I can't answer with my amount of, of watching, but you p- potentially hopefully can, the Celtics are last in the league right now at forcing turnovers when that has never been a weakness for this team in the modern era. Is, do you think there's anything there, or is this just small sample size theater? Um, I, I think what it is is the drop coverage that they're doing. They're not switching up nearly as much as they usually do, and so they're not, you know, they're not surprising ball handlers and poking out at them. They're not able to, you know, make take risks at gapping to pick off swing passes, stuff like that. Also, because they're not switching up, teams aren't swinging the ball around the perimeter as much. I think, from what I can think of off the top of my head, and also it's a small sample size. They've played Cleveland twice. They're about to play the Bulls for the second time. Like they haven't, they haven't played a wide array of styles of teams yet. But so I think two of the places where they often create turnovers, those are those are not that's not a part of their scheme right now. Um, you know, and they're playing a deep drop, so they're inviting the ball handler kind of closer towards the paint. So I just feel like in general, you're not going to generate as many turnovers that way because you're not you're not running a high pressure defense uh, in that manner. 
that makes a lot of sense. And the Celtics right now are giving up the second most, our second highest proportion is the right way to say it, of long twos in the league. They gave up the highest proportion last year, but last year that was 12.6% of opponent shots. That's all the way up to 15.9. And generally speaking, you're going to say that's a good thing because those shots are some of the hardest to make in the league. But if you're giving up better long twos, then that can shift a little bit. And that hasn't fully borne out. But what are the most wild stats so far for the Celtics? And again, you know, this is partway through the season. Opponents are shooting 53% on corner threes against them. That is like preposterously high. Which is funny because the whole point of a deep drop is that you don't have to send over a, a helper from the corner to tag the roll and then leave the corner open. So you're supposed to have better corner defense at that point. Well, and, and, and they are they are in sorry to interrupt, but they are in terms of the the frequency of those shots and like that. So opponents are only taking five percent of their attempts from corner threes, which is the second lowest in the league. However, they just happen to be making them so far and actually. You could make an argument, and I would, that reducing the volume increases the variance, and so they've just happened to have gone in so far. Yeah, that's that's potentially true. And trying to, th- I mean, if you look back, uh, they've definitely faced some teams with some really dangerous rolling bigs, so it's probably been pulling them in more anyway. Um, it's it just they've only played what seven games so far, so. Right. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna look too much into that number yet, but oh, no. hey, we'll see where we are at game twenty. Well, let's let's do some quick status reports on on various different players on this Celtics team. Just kind of no, this isn't going in deep into the stats. It's just like how do you think they're looking? And let's start with Jason Tatum. He was you know he's the the best player in their playoff run. How has he looked to you so far through seven games? Pretty great. I think he's one of the front runners for MVP early on. Obviously, they have to they have to have a pretty good record for him to contend for that. But he's he's looked better. He really does look better. Um, he looks healthier than he usually is to start the season, or I guess more in rhythm. His his game attacking the rim has just taken another evolution. He I don't know how he does it, but every year he really really changes his game and. He's gotten so much more powerful. He's choosing different lanes to attack. He uses the baseline a lot more. He faces up a lot more. He has this new shot that's really interesting where he'll go baseline and then he'll sneak up from underneath the rim and just take like a backwards layup. It's not even like a reverse where he's going for the other side of the rim. He'll go for the middle of the rim and just shoot it backwards. And at his height and athleticism, nobody can really do anything about that. It's basically a reverse dunk. And so he's finding all these creative ways to find different ways to the hoop. I think his passing vision has gotten better. I think his patience on ball has gotten a little bit better too. He seems to be a better playmaker. The the assist numbers aren't really showing that yet, but just watching him, you can just see his reads are continuing to improve from last year. And his defense has been really good. Like he's more locked in on defense than last year, more physically present. His rim protection is getting better. And that's a huge thing with him because they need they're, they're starting him at the four. So they need him to be a good rim protector so that because he's not a pick and roll defender. So Al Horford's going to be in the pick and roll at the five, which is you know different than what they were doing when Horford would be at the four and then Rob would be at the five and Horford would be up on the screen. So Tatum needs to play rim, uh, rim protection a lot and he's getting better at that. So I think his game is is rounding out and he's turning into one of the best players in the game this year, it looks like. Two things I want to highlight about Tatum's year so far, both of which I think are sustainable to some degree. So number one, free throw free throw drawing. So that had 
not you know it been honestly like I think Tatum like after his second year it was something he improved on but then took another real step forward last year 6.8 free throw attempts per 36 minutes is the highest of his career I'd actually love for that to get higher like seven or eight if he could do it but that's still a whole hell of a lot better and he's a really good free throw shooter the other one and there are kind of a couple of factors in here you were just talking about it but I'll put a statistical point to buttress your case Jason Tatum around a 50% career two-point field goal percentage and had been slightly over 50% last year, currently 64%. And that is a way that young players, I've talked about this recently with Devin Booker, it's a way that young players become more efficient. Steph Curry did this years ago. Whether they're more perimeter-oriented or more interior, you take better shots, you generate them, or you just get better at taking tougher shots. And I think that all three of those are true for Tatum. I, I think the 64 is a little bit rosy because, in part, he's shooting a ridiculous rate relative to history, history, his history from floater range. But being better as a finisher, generating better shots, all that stuff is real. And so if it's – let's say it's not 64, but it's 58%, all of a sudden on a relatively similar shot profile, you're getting more free throws, you're making more twos. He becomes one of the more efficient high-volume scorers in the entire NBA. Just looking at cleaning the glass, Tatum's points per shot attempt is 87th percentile for Fords. His assist percentage is 89th percentile, so he's taking on a pretty big proportion of the you know assists for somebody in his position group. So like that's that's great. Like that that's the kind of this you know that's the kind of balance of role that you're looking for for your top guy, and he's clearly feeling that even I think even better than he was last year. It seems like it's a little less enthusiastic for Jalen Brown, though I think I think Brown has looked totally fine to start the year. It's just that, you know, the three ball isn't falling quite as much. I think he's looked really good. Like, his finishing has gotten better. He's using his left hand a lot oh, yeah, right true. now. And, you know, we've we talked about this before. Like, he was, he was a non-left-hand player for a lot of his career, and it's gotten steadily and steadily better. And this is the year where he looks pretty much completely ambidextrous like he's passing with it he is very deliberately trying to finish it and he's hitting really really difficult shots with it so that's a really good sign his shooting hasn't been that good but i mean he's Jalen brown he's been one of the best shooters in the nba for years now he's a dead he's he's one of the best difficult shot takers in the game if it's a really tightly contested spot up on the move uh his pull-up shooting has been good like he's he's an elite shooter we know that so I'm not worried about that. I think that's going to average out. I'm sure he's going to finish as like a, what, like 38, 39% shooter on high volume. Um, let's see. Last year, he only shot 36% from three. He was at that number before that for the most part. Um, so, you know, we'll see if it if it climbs back up, but it's going to be better than 33%, I'm sure. Yeah, I, th- I think that's completely fair. And with, with Brown, again, we're seven games in. You're focusing more on what you're seeing rather than whether whether things are going in. I think the left-hand point in particular is, is really a really good one, and you're looking for that development more so than anything else. How have, what have you thought so far about Malcolm Brogdon's fit within this team? That one's going to take some work. He, um, I mean, like During the preseason, the, the looks that he was creating were just so good, and I was just like, how could it be this good? I know it's preseason, but it shouldn't look this good. And then he gets to the regular season. The spacing's not the same. Uh, he, he's got to learn. I mean, his his numbers are generally where they usually are. His usage is the same as it was last season. Uh, his assist percentage is pretty much where it was before. So you know, everything is pretty much the same spot. He is turning it over a little bit more. 
he's been taking some bad shots in the paint. He's still trying to figure out where his looks are. But I think that's going to happen. I think guys, he's going to figure out guys' tendencies where shooters in the corners like to lift or to flare out and all that kind of stuff so we can figure out where can he start making these kind of blind passes. And then, of course, once he has Rob Williams back, running pick-and-roll game with Rob is going to be pretty tremendous. So I think he's going to be fine in the end. Uh, but he is playing well. He definitely is playing well. But it, it's not where they expect him to be. I'm not surprised. I think that will change over time. I'm concerned a little bit, well, maybe more than a little bit, about his defense when we're thinking more about the yes. highest levels. Like, that, that is a problem. And so there are ways for Malcolm Brogdon to help the Celtics without being in their closing five in an NBA Finals or a Conference Finals. But you're bringing in somebody, you know, the amount that it, it's costing them and the opportunity cost because they could have, you know, added a similar, you know, a different a different player making the same money and it didn't cost them a ton in terms of assets, but you get into all that. And I think that's something that might be a problem that just doesn't really get solved. Like, he wasn't, I wasn't impressed with Malcolm Brogdon's defense his last few years on the Pacers either. And we've been wondering, is that health? You know, what exactly is that? A big thing is that He's not running the team anymore. He is the backup point guard. He's not the number one guy anymore. So he's supposed to have a lot more energy to play defense. And I mean, right now, he's only playing 23 minutes a game. He's been playing in the mid-30s the last few seasons. So he should be fresh, and he should be having a lot of energy to go in on defense. And he, you know, he's never been a high-energy guy. He was always a balance and power kind of guy. I think that a lot of the mistakes that I've seen him make were more help stuff, which is, I think, a lot more learning the scheme and getting the reps things. And you have to remember last year, the Celtics defense was horrible for the first like few weeks of the season. Like They were terrible, and people were wondering what the hell they're doing, switching everything. And then about a month into the season, we were like, oh, okay, they're going to be one of the best defenses in the league. And then a few months later, it was, oh, wow, they're the best defense in the league. So Brogdon needs time to learn the scheme. Um also, the scheme is a little bit different than it was for most of last year. So maybe whatever studying he did last year, it looks a little bit different right now. I guess it's not too different than what they were doing in the playoffs because they were running a lot more drop in the playoffs. But some of their help stuff on the backside is a little bit different. I don't notice them Xing out on closeouts as much where instead of going back to your man, it's just whoever's in position to close out first goes for it. So I think there's a little bit of confusion on that stuff. There's just been some confusion on you know teams that are doing all sorts of split actions and stuff on the other side i think that's something that's ironed out eventually but it's there's been a few instances where he's been out on an island guarding in isolation or just guarding the primary guy out in space and he's gotten blown by or gotten hit with a step back and he wasn't quite as agile or balanced as you're expecting him to be so i i, I mean i really i've always really liked brogdon's game he's the exact kind of player that they really needed i think he's gonna come around eventually but i do agree that he isn't quite where they want him to be yet that's completely fair and again, you're calibrating, you know, in a weird sample because Robert Williams isn't there. As you mentioned, the scheme is a little bit different. And that ties in with, I don't think of this as much of a April, May, June question, but due to the absences in the front court, not only Robert Williams, but Gallinari and everything else, there have been players like Sam Hauser and Luke Cornett who have gotten a different kind of opportunity now than we would expect over the course of the season. Have any of them stood out to you as like potentially being relevant in the more full strength versions of the Celtics? Probably Hauser more than Cornette because Cornette is in because Rob is hurt and they're not going to need a third center 
very, that often when Rob is back healthy. But obviously, Rob and Horford are going to rest a lot. So Cornette will get in there intermittently. And it seems like he's the favorite option over Blake Griffin in most of these matchups so far. We'll see against Chicago, but should be more Cornette. Hauser, he serves a very specific role that most of their rotation doesn't address. They need a spot-up shooter. They need a movement shooter. And he's been pretty good with that. And he's a pretty good cutter. And he's a decent defender. He has really improved his defense since even last year. And especially since his last year in college. Like, he has gotten tougher, better balanced that... You know, if you put him up in space against like someone like Donovan Mitchell, I think he's probably going to get cooked most of the time. But a lot of his job is to be that weak side defender who's supposed to close out to the shooter when the ball kicks out and stay in front of them without getting blown away. He's doing a pretty decent job at that. So I think Hauser is you know close enough to an average defender that you can keep him out there and he doesn't really hurt you too much. And I think they're going to continue to try to give him opportunity and develop him throughout the season because if they can get a, a sharp shooter that can move off of the ball and defend at a decent level in the postseason like that's something that's really vital for them to have in their back pocket it was something we talked about a lot last year that they could have really used and i mean i I brought up jj reddick not that they should actually bring him in but as an example of how that can unlock different elements within your offense i also thought it was something philly really missed last year and so if hauser can bring that it would be a huge plus I, I, you know, I, I focused a lot on that for on the second Cleveland game. I also watched a lot of first. Those were two of the rougher Hauser defensive games. But as you mentioned, that makes sense for those reasons. And you don't you don't judge a player on their worst moments, especially if you think they're a non-representative sample, which is how I feel about Hauser. And so he can bring something there. And also it's different with Hauser than it is with Brogdon in terms of like how you envision the rotation. But players who do specific things well, but don't do everything perfectly are still valuable and still a part can be a part of your playoff rotation. Me, you know, maybe they get squeezed out a little bit in the NBA finals and the conference finals. Like you have to pick your spots a little bit better. Still incredibly useful for them has made a big difference for, for the Celtics so far. And that ties in with kind of the last big picture thing that I've been thinking about with the Celtics, which is they're unusual, even before they brought in Brogdon, among high-level teams where they can run different best fives. And obviously, they are not; they can't run any, a lot of them without Robert Williams available and guys rounding into form and everything else. Has there been anything? We know the Jays are going to be in that in those groups, and there are questions about whether you have Williams and Horford or one or everything else like that. More in the, like, Marcus Smart, Derek White, Brogdon direction, has there been anything that's happened so far that has changed your expectations for kind of, like, how that is going to shake out? No, because they've been... I think Joe has finished games with different groupings constantly. And Ime was pretty good about that. You know, I know that everybody felt like Ime really nailed down his rotation in the second half of the year, but he also, I think, was pretty flexible in deciding who would close games. It was usually the core four, but then he would change it up with who that fifth guy was out there between, you know, Grant or Derek White stuff like that so i think that he's gonna continue to on a nightly basis you know mix and match who who is going to close out these games because especially when rob gets healthy they're going to have both white and brogdon and grant williams available to come off the bench and you know there's going to be nights where horford's not going to have it and they're going to want to close with grant or they're going to want to close small and keep one of the guards out there or they're going to just go super small and have tatum and brown in the front court with smart and then go with both of the other guards so i think that there's going to be a lot of flexibility there you know joe Missoula talked about before the season started about how they would probably be malleable with their starting lineups i think it's more the closing lineups that are going to be malleable it also makes more sense for the closing lineups to be more malleable because 
context dependent, not only in terms of who you're facing, but also score and situation, what's going on in the game. You have a lot more insight and input at that juncture than you do at the very beginning. And also the stability in the front end of the rotation can actually help a lot of players. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and I, I, I shouldn't. I, after saying that, I realize it probably sounds dumb. Like every team in the NBA changes up their start, their closing lineups very often because it depends on what's happening uh, in the game. I mean, I would say not every team many, does it many. in closing lineups that matter, like the Celtics did last year. I think that you okay. know, as somebody who covers all thirty, like that's that is something that some coaches are like, well, it's it's these people, and then it shifts around. And I mean, we're seeing some of that tension. I think Darvin Ham has done a nice job bouncing things around a little bit with the Lakers, and they're. There are always growing pains with that because not only are you navigating who are the best five individuals to maximize our chance of winning the game given the circumstances we're in at this moment, but it's also how is everyone going to react to that situation? And so sometimes you're managing egos, especially early in the season, and I mean – that can affect closing fives. That can affect all sorts of rotations. And so, but part of it is expectation setting as well. And I think that's something that Ime Udoka did well. And I think it's something Joe Mazzulla is doing well with the idea that you have to get the players to buy in, that they're not necessarily going to be closing every game. And that isn't necessarily the easiest thing to do. Yeah. And I think the difference with the Celtics and most other teams is most teams usually have a clear gap between their starting unit and their bench or that's like they have someone in their starting unit that they generally don't want to close games with and they have someone on the bench that they want to so the celtics are constructed uniquely in that they genuinely have eight guys that are capable of closing an nba game at a high level and so there's at the end of a game i think the matchup and the flow of the game is going to determine who should be out there between that group of let's say williams horford uh grant williams as well brogdon and white it's like you know like tatum um tatum uh brown and smart should pretty much always be closing those guys usually are clearly the best but after that it's really matchup dependent across the board every one of those guys has a different strength they bring to the table that's going to be needed in those moments and so that's why i think the celtics are probably more malleable than most teams i know you like to watch the rest of the league but we haven't talked so i don't know have you been watching enough that you have any like non-celtics takeaways from the first couple weeks <laughs> i mean i have been pretty swamped with everything going on with the celtics and now Kyrie irving of course but Cle- since we've talked about them briefly it just, cleveland has been so fascinating to watch uh because they're playing at a pretty high level and i don't think they figured themselves out really at all yet there's so much more for them to do i think they can get a lot better than where they even are right now they're extremely intriguing and the the way that they played the way donovan mitchell's performances when darius garland was out and then that you know they come in in that first quarter garland scores 14 in his return coming off of this the eye the eye issue and you're like oh now they're now they're really getting it going and i I think the Cavs, like, I mean, I had this, like, idea that I'd floated that they could end up having the best record in the Eastern Conference just because they have, they have a, you know, they have this defensive floor and then they have all these other kind of different pieces. I, I didn't expect them to be third in net rating despite one of their best players missing most of the season so far. Also, you know, the Bucks are 7-0, so we can, we can acknowledge that. But what I'm excited about is the idea that they're starting to show signs, especially with Mitchell being this great, that... This is fundamentally different from those, you know, and incidentally, Donovan Mitchell's Utah Jazz were like this, where it's like, oh, they're winning regular season games, but they can't do it in the postseason. And yes, most of these players don't have much, if any, playoff experience, but they're going to be a tough out at bare minimum if they're healthy. And I'm getting more confident that they can win a series or two. 
I just uh, watching them play, especially against a, a Celtics defense that it's it's technically good. It just you know it needs work, but they they don't have a full harmony yet between other parts, and they still are they're still bogged in isolation a lot. I don't think they're executing plays nearly at the way at the level that they can, and so they're really getting by offensively on their talent at this point. And I'm optimistic that they're going to be able to really build out their playbook, improve their execution. Um, and they like th- there should be there should be another evolution to this team, especially because there's so much time between now and the end of the year. Hopefully they can stay healthy enough to make this work. And they have talent. They have potentially motivation to continue to focus on it. And, and also like the the timeline element of it, like how much of it is this year? And I mean, the questions about Donovan Mitchell and what does he want moving forward? Of course, those are going to be lingering. But if they're this good, then you hope he's going to stick around. I hope so. I think, I I, I mean, it's too early to do any of that stuff, but they've been so much fun. They've been one of my favorite teams to watch and those two overtime throwers against the Celtics were a big part of it. Anything else, like anything, whether it's Celtics related or non, that you're looking, that you're looking at over the next couple weeks and just try, like excited about watching? No, there's too much excitement around this team for me to bear anything else. Yeah, and they're going to face, I I think for Boston, I mean, that Monday game against Memphis, I'm highlighting not only because Nate and I are doing it for the NBA strategy stream, but because it should be a really fun one. And then Friday, hosting the Nuggets on November 11th. That's a big one. It's a big one, and hopefully those teams are really showing what they have available at the moment. But like the, I, I love seeing talented teams face off against unusual opponents, and the, the Nuggets do things differently than almost everybody else. And so I want to see how it goes. I'm excited for it. Uh, can they defend Nick, uh, uh, Nikola Jokic without Rob Williams? That's going to be really interesting. I'm excited to see it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, brother. Thanks again to Jared Weiss for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at The Athletic. You can also hear him on The Athletic NBA show fairly frequently. And you can also follow him on Twitter if you don't already at Jared Weiss NBA, J-A-R-E-D-W-E-I-S-S-N-B-A. Love having him on, especially the perspective here. This is a conversation I would have wanted to have with Jared, whether it was on the podcast or not. And so that's why it made sense to do it on the podcast. If you want to support Real GM Radio, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe and download every episode, whatever podcast player you choose, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever. Really do appreciate that. You can also help other people find the show. That can be through leaving a rating and review in the podcast player you're choosing or word of mouth, social media, wherever. Really do appreciate that. People are still finding the show. And you can also, most importantly for us and those who have them, check out our sponsors. And for Real GM Radio, that is betonline.ag. Use the CLN S50 promo code to get yourself a 50% bonus on your first deposit and to tell them that you came from us. So hopefully they continue advertising on this fair podcast. You can also check out my other work, Dunked On and Dunked On Prime, going well with Nate and John Hollinger is now in the fold, Dan Feldman. It's a really great product now. I'm thrilled with it. I'm reading Dan's Daily Dunks every single day because he does such great work. You can also check the two of us out on the NBA Strategy Stream, which is the League Pass broadcast. You can watch the game, like we have the full, you know, game there, and then our commentary, which is so much fun. We're doing Celtics Grizzlies on Monday. I believe that's a nine Eastern, six Pacific start. Don't hold me to the timing, but hold me to that we're broadcasting that game. And then you can also check out my written work at The Athletic. Just had a piece come out, team by team, cap space preview, going through all that. I'll have 
plenty of other things. I have a Warriors piece in the works, and then I have a couple other things. want to do kind of like early stage off-season, like here's where things are going. And that gets complicated as things keep changing, let's put it that way. Uh, but there, of course, still ample room to discuss that. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I'm not the greatest at responding, but I do read everything and I try to respond. But I, 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 I tell you up front what I do and what I don't do always. And that is enough for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.